Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Ron from the Box and One podcast. With the major leagues elevating the Negro Leagues to major league status, we sat down with Dr. Raymond Doswell, who's the vice president and curator at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, to discuss African-Americans in baseball and their impact. If you're enjoying our content, make sure you subscribe to our channel on YouTube and hit the little bell for notifications whenever we put anything new out. You can also listen to us in audio form on any major podcast streaming platform. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod, and leave us comments or likes on anything that we put out. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of Boxing One. I'm Azam Faruqi with my co-host Ron Salgado. Pramit Bose is on DL uh, this week. Uh, he's unavailable, so he should be back for our next episode. So our episode today is a little bit different than what we usually do. Uh, we're very excited that uh, we have an amazing guest with us today. Uh, Raymond Doswell, who is the vice president and curator at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So we, we just thought that it would probably a, be a good uh, opportunity for us to learn and uh, bring some new perspective to our listeners as well. Uh, I know that both Ron and I were discussing that uh, as part of our research, there was a lot of learning for us as well. So um, we're very excited about that. So thank you for, um, for coming on our show, Raymond. Glad to be here. So let's start off um, right at the early days. Um Let's, if you can talk uh, about uh, the African American community, how did they take a baseball, and how did that evolve and virtual, you know, eventually led towards the creation of uh, the Negro Leagues? So historians have noted that African Americans have been present at the inception of the game uh, in many ways. Well, first, as slaves, they certainly saw the earliest forms of ball and stick games that were being played across the country that ultimately evolved into what will become baseball and the modern rules of baseball. Uh, they have noted that some of the earliest African-American professional games or even recorded uh, games of black teams is as early as 1859. Um, now, Baseball is popular among many ethnic groups inside the United States as it evolves and as the country becomes more industrial and more urban in particular. Uh, various ethnic groups love baseball, and um, some would say that baseball was uh, uh, an, an interesting uh, reaction to industrialization in that in our large urban centers in the United States and across North America, uh, you've got these the, these folks huddling in the large cities, but nest, crowded in the somewhat small spaces when you think about the different ethnic neighborhoods that pop up uh, and the industrial uh, smokestacks from the different companies and different things that uh, these communities ended up being built around. Uh, and yet baseball uh, became a popular sport first in the upper crust and then uh, to our urban folks, again, of all ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds, and then as it become as it became kind of an industrialized uh, urban amusement in its own right, but with these large fields of green grass, and it harkened back to a pastoral time that baseball became an escape from the industrialized city in many respects, and that was why it became so popular. And this was not untrue for African-Americans as well, uh, living in places like New York and Chicago and Boston and other places. Um, uh, grew up watching and loving baseball, uh, particularly in places like Philadelphia, where uh, there were a lot of black teams. One team in particular was the Philadelphia Pythians. Uh, the Pythians um, of the uh, 1870s, 1880s, were led by a man, man named Octavius Cato. And Cato was actually a civil rights leader in that era as well. Uh, they tried to apply for membership in what was then considered a major league or, or association of their regional uh, leagues of white baseball teams at the time. And although they had uh, some support, uh, the majority of delegates at this meeting that was held 
did not want to accept them as a team um, to the point that they actually didn't want to even vote so that it wouldn't appear that they were racist in many respects, but uh, they were denied entry into those leagues. But teams like the Pythians and others continue to grow and build independently and travel all across the East and, and in the Midwest and then sometimes in the Southeast as well. Um, a lot of um, groups of ball players would even organize in places where they worked, like uh, hotels. They would be made up of hotel waiters, and sometimes they would play maybe even entertaining the fans. Uh, or uh, at resorts like in Florida, where players would go down to Florida, work at the resorts, but then organize teams, and they would play each other or play against other resorts or occasionally even white teams. And this is kind of before baseball spring training is in Florida, although that would soon come later. They could also go to places like Cuba or Puerto Rico and play baseball by this time. But by the late 1800s, there was this push uh, for a little bit more professionalism, and there were lots of baseball teams popping up African-American teams traveling here and there, playing all levels of competition, some of them claiming to be the best teams of the colored champions and things like that. But there's no way to really settle that on the field without league structure, meaning these teams getting together, playing common opponents on a regular schedule, maybe playoffs, maybe some revenue sharing, determine a champion at the end of the season. Um, and there were attempts in the 18, late 1800s to create leagues, but none were very successful. By the time you get to 1900, uh, uh, there were actually a handful of individual black players who were playing in the so-called major leagues with white teams, a handful of them. Uh, most notably, uh, Moses Walker and his brother, Weldy Walker from Ohio, had played in what would be considered major league teams or even a few guys before that. But the Walker brothers uh, couldn't hide their ethnic identity, whereas previous players could. Um, and they had some success uh, after some consternation, but even they were pushed out of the leagues. Uh, and a handful of others were pushed out of so-called white major league and minor leagues. There was never a written rule that said that they could not play. Just collusion that kept them out, what historians have generally referred to as the gentleman's agreement uh, that kept players from being recruited. And so in that mix and with the, the lack of league structures, uh, teams would start and stop, leagues would start and stop. Um, and uh, by 1900, there weren't any blacks in the major leagues, but there were still more black teams being formed um, uh, all the time. Uh, and independent teams, uh, most notably teams like the Chicago American Giants under the leadership of Andrew Foster, Rube Foster is his nickname. Uh, a giant of a man, both in, as a baseball athlete and as a businessman later, uh, forming the American Giants and other teams would, and mostly in the Midwest, would also follow. Uh, but they didn't have that league structure. Now, a couple of points before getting to the beginnings of what we consider the Negro Leagues in 1920, some things are happening. Um, black baseball teams are competing. The black press is pushing them to for organization. By the time you get to World War One, I, I mean, all kinds of things are happening, like the so-called Spanish flu epidemic around the world, which affects everyone, including sports. Um, right after that, uh, there is the so-called Red Summer uh, in the United States, which really lasts about two years. And this is a, a series of just vicious racial violence that's happening in the United States. In part, not solely, but in part because of the, uh, the end of the war. Uh, what's happening at the end of the war is black soldiers are coming back uh, uh, from the war, having fought gallantly for the United States. Uh, looking for rights, looking for freedom, uh, while others are concerned about them asking for freedom. Perhaps they maybe picked up some lessons from the Bolshevik Revolution and things like that. And so there's this resistance uh, that's happening. And race riots explode in places like Texas and, and East St. Louis, Illinois, and Chicago, Illinois, and Arkansas, and just a wave of racial violence. And this is over 100 years ago, sounding very similar to what we're dealing with today. Uh, out of that, though, 
comes uh, the new Negro movement and the Harlem Renaissance, a sense of race pride, uh, both self-reliance, art, jazz, all these things explode. The Marcus Garvey movement going back to Africa for, for self, you know, self-determination uh, are the kinds of themes that come out of it. And, and out of this mix also comes the Negro Leagues because ultimately a push was made partly through the black press and others to organize the independent black baseball teams. And they finally met in February of 1920 here in Kansas City at the YMCA building, the colored YMCA building on Paseo Boulevard, which has its own unique history because it was built by the black community as a segregated YMCA. But they met there and hammered out the organization that would govern black baseball and develop what is called the Negro National League. And that would be the most enduring and successful of all the future Negro Leagues. And we will consider that the founding of Negro Leagues baseball in February 1920, 101 years ago. So I, I know that uh, like I've read in a, in a bunch of places and seen a few documentaries where, uh, you know, Rube Foster is, is kind of considered the, the architect of the Negro Leagues. Um, given what what was going on leading up to the the formation of the of the ne- the Negro National League, it, it without Rube Foster would we have still ended up in the same place with the formation of of the league, or you know would somebody else have taken up the mantle and eventually done the same? That's a good question. I'm not prepared to say that it wouldn't, but and he certainly wasn't the only one driving this issue, but he was a driving force. It's hard to. Uh, underestimate his contribution to the whole thing, primarily because of the longstanding uh, success that he had with his team in Chicago. He had a lot of good connections with uh, um, usage of stadiums around the country, especially in Chicago. He had developed a relationship with the Chicago White Sox to be able to use some of their facilities. And he had a great reputation both as a player and as a leader and manager. And he was just very smart um, and well-organized. So when the push came for the meeting, he was very, he anticipated a lot of things. He showed up at the meeting with articles of incorporation for the leagues that he had developed. Apparently, according to news reports, this was a surprise to other leaders and owners. Uh, But um, he he was able to forego uh, and, and was elected the league president, but by doing so, he chose to forego any kind of so-called salary for that position um, and didn't forego necessarily his leadership of Chicago team, but decided instead to take in um, 5% of the gate from every game. So that's how he made his money and put some money back into league structure. So he was always pushing for professionalism early on, and uh, this was a means to an end in that regard uh, for him, knowing that teams had to master uh, scheduling, had to master travel, and other things. So his genius was uh, the spark that certainly kept the thing going uh, in very many respects. Um, uh, it, one could argue that it couldn't have happened without him. Um but he's, it certainly was uh, him driving uh, the issue forward and making sure that there was a, at least a stability uh, of success for the leagues and the teams to start out uh, was certainly his genius. And in, in that striving for, for professionalism, were they still running the, the barnstorming games or was that pre-formation of the, of the leagues? And how did, how did uh, I guess... How did record keeping look during those times? Um, first, let me try to define barnstorming as I think it should be appropriated because it's a it's a catchy word. It's something that people like to hang on to um, in terms of the romanticism of all this. Um, but there is a distinction. Barnstorming uh, without league play was teams kind of scheduling well, not really even scheduling games per se, but just traveling. I mean, they were basically little traveling circuses when you think about it. Um, The forward-thinking owners and managers were able to kind of create a tour for their teams. 
um, that they knew they were going to play here, here, and here, and here, get the accommodation set up and everything else. And even though they didn't have a league schedule to play, they had opponents they could play. Uh, that's not so much true barnstorming. Barnstorming is when you don't have any of that plan. You show up in town or you show up ahead of time and try to get games going. Um, and sometimes they were prearranged and sometimes they weren't. And you tried to play all opponents that you could. Um, and uh, that baseball was a lot like that before the structure of leagues. But then even once leagues were structured, um, uh, teams supplemented their league play and pay by continuing to schedule games in between in different communities. It could be black teams. It could be white teams. For example, there could be a team in St. Louis, Missouri, traveling to play the league team in Chicago. And all along the way, heading north to Chicago, they could play in Peoria and, and other places, no matter levels of competition. And sometimes they would be invited to play. Um, sometimes they would create a network of games they would play annually. Uh, maybe certain communities might invite them for a holiday game against their local town team, like the uh, Independence Day or Labor Day here in the States. And um, they would develop this kind of uh, rhythm with that and then go to Chicago and play their league scheduled games and maybe even additional exhibition games uh, across the way in Gary, Indiana or someplace uh, uh, west of Chicago just to earn additional money. So that could happen too. That happens a little bit later after Foster, but um, record keeping, uh, they, they kept scorebooks as best they could, but for the most part, games were called into the different newspapers for reporting. They didn't necessarily have beat writers like the New York Yankees or others did. Uh, so uh, a lot of the scorekeeping was kept, obviously, for record book sakes. And Mr. Foster kept a ledger and other things to keep track of wins, losses, and revenues, most importantly. Um, but a lot of the records, as we know it, have been lost to history. And uh, historians have have tried to find as much as they could where they could, but a lot of that is in the newspapers, black newspapers, and usually weekly newspapers uh, written in the African-American community. I think uh, what I've discovered just in my own little bit of research is that early on, certain teams might have been covered a little bit more on a daily basis by the white mainstream papers. Um, but over time, it was the black weekly newspapers that really were the chroniclers of the game. And... Um, uh, but a lot of the record keeping was has been lost to history. Okay, so we get to 1920. We have the first season of the Negro National League. I think there were about 14 teams at that point, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Chicago was the winner, right? First season. Well, there were um, there weren't 14, and maybe closer to eight teams in the first season. Uh, and okay. some teams didn't even make it through the entire season. Um, yeah, I believe Chicago was one of the was, was uh, determined champions after the first season. But as you get closer to 1923, um, rival leagues formed. Uh, there was a a Negro Southern League, uh, a Southern Negro League, I should say. Uh, I, I forgive the, the switch of the words because there was another Negro Southern League that would come later. Um, uh, and they were not necessarily formally affiliated with the Negro National League, but some of those teams would be absorbed later. Uh, but then there was the Eastern Colored League in 1923 made up of teams that were primarily from the East, like in Philadelphia, New York, uh, D.C. area, Baltimore area, um, and uh, they had a different structure. Most of the, the teams in the Midwest, I shouldn't say that they had a different structure, but they had different levels of leadership. Uh, and the unique thing about it was that most of those teams in the Negro National League in the Midwest were mostly Black-owned enterprises, with the exception of the Kansas City Monarchs, which had a white owner in J.L. Wilkinson. In some respects, he was invited to try to form a team in Kansas City. It was the westernmost city in the circuit, uh, had a large growing black population. Uh, he had connections from other baseball enterprises that he had done and was able to create the team. Um, but at the Eastern Color League had black ownership, but had a lot of, of uh, leadership that was white um, through booking agents. 
and the booking agents were the ones who controlled access to the different ballparks. Um, and keep in mind, at least in 1920, no black team owned their own ballpark, they either rented it from a major league or minor league team. Now that had changes over time, but still there's only a couple of teams that are able to build their own ball fields on a regular basis. Uh, it was still an anomaly for them to have their own ball fields that they controlled. Um, for the most part, they were at the mercy of renting those stadiums either through booking agents or working with the white major league or minor league teams at the time. Uh, but the, the, the teams kind of ebbed and flowed through the 20s, uh, um, and um, some of them hung on, some of them uh, uh, fell off, but most had persevered until really kind of a I wouldn't say crisis point, but kind of an end point that gets us to 1929 with the stock market crash and the uh, the Great Depression coming on. Okay. And so when the league gets off the ground, what does the average season look like? And can you talk, so I have a bit of a two-part question, not really related, but what does an average match day look like? What, you know, how did they schedule games, especially if they're uh, renting ballparks from major league teams who are probably you know, obviously playing uh, most of the time? And secondly, part of when I was doing research, a couple of things that come out a lot is the socioeconomic impact it had on the African-American community. Uh, can you talk a little bit about these two things? So if I could uh, take the last question first, um, I mean, there are a lot of people speculate about the socioeconomic impact, but I I haven't found a lot of credible studies mm-hmm. on that. It's hard to say. I will say this, though. I mean, they were small businesses in their own right. Uh, they did draw lots of attention and fans, um, especially the opening series uh, of the seasons, which were usually early May. Uh, as you start to get in the 20s and 1930s, uh, the teams would do spring training in places like Arkansas and Texas and maybe Florida. Uh, and then they would, it wasn't spring training as we know it today where everyone exercises and then they play exhibition games. No, they're starting to play exhibition games and then actually play their way up north <laughs> to opening day and their home cities, uh, playing against white teams, black teams, college teams, whomever would get a practice with them. Um, and here in Kansas City, for example, opening day also included parades and beauty contests and things like that. So um, it's safe to say, though, that the stadiums that they rented were in the urban areas, some of them in what would become traditionally black neighborhoods, so to speak. Uh, again, for example, uh, here in Kansas City, that that stadium took on a lot of names, but I think uh, early on that was Association Park and then became Rupert Stadium, but it was owned by the New York Yankees farm team, the Kansas City Blues. Uh, so um, it's not far from our location here at the museum at 22nd in Brooklyn, which is uh, had developed into an African-American side of town. So it's in the heart of the black community, easy to access by trolley car and um, or walk to. So uh, although it is kind of uphill going south, uh, it was something that was easy for at least the black community to come and enjoy. Um, match day, if you will, was usually, since their renting stadiums were on Sundays for the most part, Saturdays and Sundays, and the, and the minor league or major league team would play during the week. Most of the Negro League games were on the weekends, when the, and then they would travel during the week um, when they could to play other, other teams and other games. Um, Early on, uh, stadium crowds looked to be closer to twelve to 15,000, and in some places, 20,000. Um, with uh, ticket availability for any average fan, and again, these weren't necessarily segregated games per se. White fans could go to these games. I mean, and black fans could go watch white baseball too, but depending on the city rules, there might have been segregated seating, but that, for the most part, didn't seem to be the case with most black teams. It all depends on the community and the community norms. Um, and these these teams made pretty decent money. There's not a lot of research on hard research on salaries, but uh, 
percentage of gate was split between winner and loser based on who won or lost. And then that trickled down to paying for the facilities, then the owner taking their primary cut and then taking the rest to pay a little bit more for the manager and coaches. And then the players got their share, maybe a star player. Uh, got a little bit more of a share uh, because of just who they were and things that they negotiated. For the most part, players were governed by a uniform uh, player's contract, which was copied from Major League Baseball, uh, which also included uh, a reserve clause uh, that, you know, prevented players from jumping contracts and and ownership could kind of control where they would be traded. And there were trades and transactions. Uh, in the leagues as well. And sometimes there were contracts that were ironclad and sometimes contracts were not. And um, they didn't necessarily have formal commissioners per se. So it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it was often that players would jump their contracts to go and play for other teams or what would mostly happen was that they might leave the league and team early and maybe get another opportunity playing in Latin America, Mexico or, or Cuba or Puerto Rico and do opportunities like that. So um, there was a lot of support from the community uh, and players uh, did the best they could to make money where they could make money. Uh, and um it was quite a time. It wasn't. There were times when it wasn't always as organized, but there were times when it was quite organized, and certainly the level of competition was very high. Uh, so, being of, uh, I'm, I'm of Latin American descent, and one of the things that I found most interesting was, you know, I, I think I saw some stats where it was the league was about 10 to 15 percent Latin American players. Around when do we start to see uh, some of the influx of of Latin American players into the Negro leagues? Almost from the beginning, pre-Negro leagues, because. Um, you can, uh, historian Adrian Burgos Jr. Uh, really has the, his pulse on this and has researched it. And particularly places like Cuba is the, is the fountainhead of baseball in the Caribbean and, um, uh, uh, and it's spread uh, partly due to the influence of American military. But um, as early as the very early 1900s, you have... Um, uh, young people coming to the United States from places like Cuba, studying in the United States and learning baseball and bringing it back to the Caribbean. Um, and my understanding is that baseball leagues developed very early in the 1880s or so in places like Cuba and become part of the the um, the industrial uh, companies that are around, especially those who are harvesting sugar and things like that. Um, and there, as I understand it too, that there are race issues in places like Cuba where there's black and white and, and the leagues were segregated at first, uh, through black and white, but then quickly became integrated, um, within the industrial leagues and then the Cuban professional leagues kind of spawn out of that. Uh, and then they take baseball along with the influence of the American military to some other parts of the islands and things like that. With the development of those professional leagues, it opened up opportunities uh, for early winter baseball. Uh, now, as early as 1910, there are, uh, this is before, obviously before the formation of the Negro National League, black players could go out to even California and play in the California winter leagues. And those leagues were not integrated either as far as players within teams, but there were integrated team play. So you could have uh, American teams, white American teams, you could have Mexican American teams, and over time you get Japanese American teams playing up and down the coast in California. Um, and um, for, and then after that, you could maybe play on the west coast of Mexico for winter baseball, uh, and then you'd come back to the Caribbean and play through January through March or April, and then come back to the United States if you're a black player. Uh, and so you're playing baseball all year round. So there's, if you're good, there are opportunities for you. Um, those race issues, though, in the Caribbean still manifest themselves in the United States. So uh, there were, I guess, what you might call white Cubans who actually played Major League Baseball even on teams like Cincinnati Reds, uh, most notably Adolfo Luque, who's this outstanding player, uh, and some others. 
but a player like Jose Mendez, called the the Black Diamond, played was a player manager for the Kansas City Monarchs. He was darker skin, so if he wanted to play in the United States, he played uh, in the Negro leagues. And um, the early uh, Monarchs teams, um, they had Mendez, and they had a couple of other Latino players. Uh, on their roster, in, including uh, the players who helped them win the 1924 first Negro League World Series. And if, if sorry, you could uh, talk, yeah, no, sorry, uh, if you could talk a little bit as well, because I like, I from what I understand, the the roster sizes were were fairly small. Um, how did that influence uh, style of play and just player development in general? Because I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they would probably have to cover multiple positions, pitch, field, everything, right? Yeah, and player development is is a is quite a statement. Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, it's it, you do have to you can, you really can't look at it the Negro leagues, other than the fact that is there's ball and bat and the rules are the same. The lens of MLB and especially modern MLB can't not be placed on black baseball back then. But to your question. Uh, the, the lineups were smaller and guys did play multiple positions and many of them played them well. I mean, I speak of Mendez, for example, he was uh, in his playing days, he was primarily a pitcher. Even as a manager, he was a pitcher, but he also played shortstop. Um, other great, here's another, a little bit later, Martin De Higo from Cuba, best known as a pitcher, but he could hit 400. Wilbur Bullet Rogan, uh, one of the early champions on the Monarchs teams, also hit very well and played the outfield. It was not uncommon for guys to pitch and play first base or do other things, um, which also allowed them to also serve as relief pitchers if necessary. You don't get a, unless they were really special, you don't get a lot of specialization until later on. Um, I mean, Satchel Page, the great Satchel Page later on, he has to hit too, but he wasn't a great hitter. He was primarily a pitcher. But uh, for the most part, yes, a lot of players, Leon Day and many others, played multiple positions, played them well, even though they might have pitched as well. Uh, um, and then there's guys like Ted Double Duty Radcliffe, again, coming along a little bit later, who would pitch and catch. And it said that he once pitched one end of a doubleheader and caught the other end of a doubleheader. <laughs> so, um, which meant roster sizes for the most part were closer to, to uh, 12, maybe 19 players. Um, certainly not 26 to 28 that we have today in Major League Baseball. So that's an interesting piece uh, because part of our fascination today is judging and obviously for good reason you know we look at stats and you know how wholesome they are and we judge players accordingly but it's really impossible to just look at it from a statistical perspective when we're talking about the negro leagues because you have to appreciate beyond just the figures or what you see right so players like josh gibson um and that's something we were talking if you just look at his official stats, that's about 113 home runs. But a lot of places you hear that he even had 84 home runs in a season. And like a lot of that has been lost uh, to the history, right? Yeah, but at the same time, again, it is, it's, 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 it's not apples to oranges, but it's kind of more apples to pears. Um, similar looking fruits, slightly different tastes. Um, and because of what is available, again, it's 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 hard to look. I, I always caution folks: don't try to look at the Negro leagues through the same lens as Major League Baseball. I know that's hard to do because mm -hmm. if you want to try to figure out, well, how do I make equivalencies to this? Um, and because we we are sometimes stuck in trying to prove someone's worth based on the analytics. Mm -hmm. um, you can't do that with the Negro Leagues. One, because the data is not there. And I'll go as far as saying the data will never be there. Not to to the satisfactory point of someone who completely relies on the data. Um, and part of that is because it's been lost to history. Uh, at the same time, as I noted earlier, teams uh, had league games and then they had extra games. And that was kind of the nature of the Negro Leagues in order to sustain themselves. So what data do you count 
where it survives. Now, you've probably heard about the news of the elevation of Negro Leagues to Major League status. Mm -hmm. The data that is currently being considered is just a league game status. So uh, uh, data. So uh, that is going to look paltry uh, analytically compared to what other teams and players have done. Uh, But it's a broader story than that. I will say this. There are people working very diligently to try to complete that record as much as possible, but they're never going to get to the very end because it just the records just don't exist. Not in a robust enough way to get to all of them. And so I'm doubtful we'll ever get a complete total record, but we'll get um, enough that these folks can be entered into the conversation. And there's enough historical information that's not just folklore, that's not just um, anecdotal or apocryphal that can prove that these people were good and talented, but it's, it's less important to me whether Gibson is the all-time home run leader. That that's, that's not even the most important part of the story. The most part of part of the story to me is the fact that uh, we can connect his story to explaining uh, parts of our American story, our American experience, in particular, the great migration of African-Americans, which his family endured from Bonavista, Georgia, to Pittsburgh, folks moving north, finding, uh, trying to find jobs, trying to escape racism and Jim Crow and sharecropping, uh, to become part of the industrial Pittsburgh, and ultimately, his baseball talent at a teenager wins out, and he becomes a meteoric star, but dies at 35. And that that's more important to me than however many home runs he hit. Just understanding that and how that relates to other black people in America. hundred percent. So in the interest of time, uh, we just want to move um, towards integration. So obviously one of the questions that always gets asked uh, is Jackie Robinson may not have been the best player in the Negro leagues, but he was absolutely the, the right person to break the color barrier. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, that seems to be the consensus among historians as well as some of his contemporaries. And um, people often talk about, well, were certain players jealous of him or this or that? Because um, he wasn't, when they say he wasn't the best player, it's because he wasn't a known commodity for baseball uh, or having a lot of experience in baseball at least professionally, and certainly not compared to other contemporaries like, say, Amante Irvin or even a Roy Campanella, who um, would ultimately become his teammate in the major leagues. Robinson, though, is no, he's not, he doesn't just pop out of the blue, so to speak, uh, at least in the black community, because they know who he was. He was a minor celebrity at best from his collegiate athletic days at UCLA playing football, running track. Um, He was a national star in that regard. Um, His brother was an Olympian. Mac Robinson was an Olympian with Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. Uh, People knew who he was. They didn't really know him for baseball, but he played baseball in junior college and in college. Um, And after the military, um, uh, when he was drafted, uh, and oh, subsequently court-martialed for not moving to the back of a bus uh, on a military base and was honorably discharged after that, uh, beating a court-martial. He needed a job and found the, the monarchs who were depleted from the war. Uh, a lot of the, the major leagues and the Negro leagues were depleted of players during the, the uh, World War II draft. Um, the talent level was still a little bit higher by comparison in the Negro leagues because there were just less players affected, but play teams like Kansas city Monarchs still needed players and Robinson got his opportunity. So people had heard of him. They knew about him. He had a decent season in 1945 with the Monarchs, but all these other things, forces were kind of coming together. Um, uh, in 1945, the political pressures on the base on baseball in New York, in particular, to try to do something by integration as a labor issue, the media pressures, both from the black media and even questions in certain aspects of the white media, if you will, on this issue of uh, integration. 
the war effort itself where black soldiers have fought valiantly again as they did in World War I uh, uh, and were proving their worth to the country and certainly still not getting certain rights at home among them uh, being able to play professional baseball. And um, then finally, this kind of long brewing plan of Dodgers general manager Branch Rickey to figure out a way to get black talent onto his team. And all these things were just kind of coming together and converged ultimately on Robinson. <laughs> uh, and uh, at 26 years old, uh, kind of old for a rookie player, but he had a lot of different athletic and life experiences uh, that at least for Mr. Ricky uh, felt <clears throat> that those would serve him well in this very daunting uh, task that he had to take on. And it proved to be correct. Um, I mentioned players like Monty Irvin, who ultimately get a chance to go to New York Giants. And he might have been among the first to be considered. <coughs> Excuse me. He had spent time in the military before Robinson. Had some ankle injuries as well. But his experience, like Robinson's, was not good in the military left him maybe a little bit bitter at first and probably felt he talked about that uh, Robinson was a little bit stronger than he was to to uh, jump right into that situation. He didn't think that he could be, uh, but ultimately he did uh, and was had a great deal of success. Um, and I think to a man, at least people like Satchel Page, who many thought probably should have been first, just because of his notoriety. But Page was kind of, uh, kind of on the downside of his career, in many respects, but still a big draw, outstanding talent. Uh, but even he said that he would say that he didn't think he could take the abuse that Robinson took, and so Robinson understood the gravity of the situation, uh, and. Um, and rose to the challenge in many respects. And, and in some respects, uh, against his normal nature, it's not, it wasn't like him to suffer fools lightly or, or to put up with any kind of racist attitude. Uh, but Branch Rickey asked him to kind of quell his, his uh, energies on that, stay in control in order for things to work out. And then after a certain time, he could, he could let loose. And that's what happened. And um, he became one of the really the most important athletes uh, uh, in world history, if you ask me. Yeah. And, and it's just very interesting. I found uh, just a comment that it's and, you know, we hear so much. And, and like you said, this consensus, he wasn't the best player, but it's not as if like, he was no slouch. Right. I mean, he right. won rookie of the year and he won MVP within the first three years playing baseball. So it was, it was pretty interesting. I always find that fascinating. And one of the things that I want to add as well, it's I was listening to one of your uh, one of your other interviews and just to kind of tie it into to Canada, since we're in Canada, was the impact that he had on Willie O'Ree um, when, you know, when he was, it was for those who don't know, was the first uh, black hockey player in, in the NHL. Uh, when Willie mentioned that he wanted to play hockey, you know, Jackie Robinson didn't didn't discourage him from doing it. He 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 encouraged him and, and said, you know, go, go and do it if that's what you want to do. Yeah, I've had the honor of meeting Mr. O'Ree, and um, we've done a couple programs with him. Fascinating story because he um, loved hockey to start, uh, but his dad wanted him to play baseball, and he had some talent with that. And he he treasures having met Jackie Robinson as a young baseball player. Uh, and Robinson told Robinson about uh, wanting to play hockey and Robinson encouraging him. And uh, for those who don't know the story, though, O'Ree did try to play baseball. He actually got as high as the low minor leagues in the Braves organization. Um, uh, one of, but one of the more poignant stories he told was um, leaving Nova Scotia for the bus to go to spring training, uh, getting down to the United States and getting to the Kentucky border on the bus. Uh, and he could sit where he wanted before that, but once they crossed the Kentucky border, he had to move to the back of the bus. He was devastated and just had a miserable time trying to play baseball until he called his father and said, look, I tried. I don't like it. I want to come home. And then that's when his father relented, and then he got right back into hockey and uh, 
became a legendary hockey player. So I just want to ask one more thing about integration. Uh, sorry, I'm taking too much time here, but um, this is something I learned. So obviously racism was the big issue, you know, and that's why it took as long as it did to break the color barrier. But the other thing I read was it was a pretty good gig for major leagues, like having the Negro leagues around, like they were making a lot of money off them, right? Renting um, the stadiums, taking a cut from the gate receipts, making money off concessions. And and I saw in one of uh, the programs, actually a storied on the website uh, for the Negro League Baseball Museum, that the Yankees made a hundred grand in 1945 of the Negro Leagues. I mean, it's it's kind of tough to give up a gig like that, no? <laughs> yeah, uh, but they weren't as progressive as they could have been either. So mm-hmm. how did that work? So the Yankees own Yankee Stadium, obviously which they rented out to the Negro Leagues for Sunday, four team doubleheaders. They own uh, the baseball the minor league park in Newark, New Jersey, that was rented by the Newark Eagles Negro Leagues team. They own the uh, stadium, minor league stadium here in Kansas City, which was uh, part for the uh, Kansas City Blues minor league team, their minor league team. So they're making money <laughs> all up and down. Uh, this enterprise as well. Um, But they were also a team not only making money, but it's fair to say that they had successful players. They had successful teams with just all white players. They were, I wouldn't say perennial champions even then, but they, they had a lot of success. So they felt that they weren't in a hurry to integrate. But I'm remarked that one of the films uh, in our museum and one of the commentators talks about the fact that, you know, the Yankees could have been more progressive if they were about winning. Uh, they could have had an outfield of, of, of Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, and Henry Aaron if they wanted it. You know, the at a certain point in the 50s during integration, those players were out there and available and other scouts saw them. Uh, he, he said, do you mean the Yankee scouts didn't see them? You know, so if they were truly about winning, mm-hmm. they could have grabbed those players. And ultimately, they did not. And uh, he he surmised that just the leadership of the team was was just not progressive enough and were racist. So in addition to making the money, uh, they just weren't interested. Um, but now the New York Giants became interested and uh, got players like Monty Irvin. Uh, got players like Hank Thompson, and ultimately they were the ones who landed Willie Mays, and it did lead to some championships for them. And the Dodgers were very aggressive with Robinson, uh, ultimately briefly for Dan Bankhead, but other players like Joe Black, um, uh, Roy Campanella, and Don Newcomb, aggressive in getting top talent. And uh, the Dodgers were more snake bit as far as the championships, but they would go to playoffs perennially for a little while. So and ultimately did win the World Series uh, in the in the mid to late '50s. So um, the success of these teams really depended on their leadership. Looking past the social mores of the time, um, you have what between 1947 and 1959, when all the teams were able to integrate with at least one black or Afro Latino player on their roster, about 120 players in this time period. That's how long it takes for full integration, if you will, in baseball. Um, but the players are dominating in most valuable player awards. They're dominating rookie of the year awards. Uh, many of their teams are going to the World Series. Most of those teams that recruit them are in the National League, and the National League dominates the All-Star game. This is the greatest influx of athletic talent in history, period. And it was a missed opportunity for those teams who move slow. Even my favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals, were among the slowest of teams, to uh, to get black and Latino players. Well, once they did, it was great because that meant Lou Brock and Jeff Bob Gibson and Bill White and Julian Javier and Orlando Cepeda. And those teams, as you get into the 60s, began to win championships. All right. So, uh, Ray, in the in the interest of time, and I know you have another speaking engagement after this, um, I, I think this is a good, uh, good point to end it off on. Um, but 
we we really appreciate your time. Uh, this has been very informative. I, I hope our, our listeners have enjoyed this as much as we have. But um, can can you just let people know how they can find you? Uh, is the museum still open? Can they still visit at, at this time? Or Well, the museum's been open since June of last year after the early pandemic shutdown. So we've been trucking on. Uh, folks can come and certainly visit us in person. We do have reduced operating hours from normal but uh, we are open still Tuesday through Saturday and Sunday here in Kansas City. Um, we're doing a lot more virtual programming through our Facebook page. So you might see announcements of different events, book signing, book readings, I should say, for families as well as uh, historical readings and, and, and uh, discussions of Negro Leagues history, usually through our Facebook and YouTube channels. Um, so just watch Facebook for those announcements. Uh, we uh, we are uh, uh, grateful for the number of members we have across the country in North America as well. So membership and donations are certainly welcome. You can see that on our on our website at www.nlbm.com. So there are ways you can contribute and buy uh, books and research materials video as well as caps and shirts and all kinds of things to help support our cause. So that's a very good one last question I want to ask because that is something I wanted to ask. Is there any book or in particular that you would recommend uh, our viewers? Uh, I know I, I'm probably going to go out and get one. So, <laughs> Well, it really does depend on how deep down the rabbit hole you want to go <laughs> with this history. Um, I would say, but a good book to start with is uh, by uh, Professor Leslie Heafy, H-E-A-P-H-Y. She teaches at Kent State, and her book, uh, The Negro Leagues, I think is 18, uh, 1859 and 1960. I think I got those dates right. That's a good college textbook, good high school textbook to start with, and you should mm -hmm. be as expert on just as anybody on the basic history of the Negro Leagues after reading that. I would add uh, Adrian Burgos's uh, Playing America's Game, which uh, covers uh, a lot of the Negro Leagues and the connections to Latin American baseball. And between the two of those books, you could be a baseball genius, frankly, uh, <laughs> on this topic. I would love that. And, and, and there will there are others, but start with those two. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to start getting in statistics and lists, there are other books that you can that you can find. And we'll, we'll add those two books uh, into the description. We'll put links to them. And also we'll put links to the uh, to, I guess, your Facebook page and your website so people uh, people can find you. But again, Ray, we, we really appreciate this. This has been fantastic to our our listeners and viewers. If, if you have any comments, feel free to contact us. Let us know. Instagram at Box and One Pod on Twitter as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, just let us know what you thought. If you have any questions, Ray, hopefully we can have you uh, on again at some point, uh, because I know we have a lot more questions that we haven't been able to get to. Yeah, we're glad to, to be a part of it. And thanks for the opportunity. Thank nope. you, Ray. Hopefully see you soon. Thanks, thanks for having me.